Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. I'm not the type of person who usually remembers his dreams. I know that I dream. If I wear my watch while I sleep, it gives me a report and it tells me that I have had extended periods of REM sleep during the night. While I don't remember the dreams, I I wake up and I know that there were definitely periods during my sleep where I remember seeing images, but I very, very rarely remember any details from anything that I dream. Even when I do have the ability to remember or recall what I dreamt, it usually is just a vague recollection. Maybe you're like me, It's the same way, you know, you don't remember much details at all from your dream. Or maybe you wake from your slumber and you're like some people that I know who can tell you significant details about what they've dreamt. I I might remember when I do remember a dream. I might remember a general theme or an event that happened. But some people can describe the entire scene of what was going on around them down to the most small and insignificant details. Now, a few years back, I had a goal to listen to or read a total of 100 books in a year. And so to knock out a significant portion of those, I read a lot of short introductory books on different topics, listened to a lot of them, several of them I was able to get in in one hospital visit to Sioux Falls and back. And so I did achieve my goal, but the, one, of the, one of the books that I, that I remember very clearly was a very short book. It was a, an introduction to dreams. And I found the book very interesting as someone who doesn't dream all that much or remember my dreams, because at the end of the book, the author suggested that everyone should keep a dream journal, that as soon as you wake up, you should write down what you dreamt about first thing in the morning when you wake up. Now, I laughed at that because I seriously could probably keep a dream journal from, a no, from uh, an entire year on a post-it note, right? That may be front and back, but that's all it would be. And as we come to our text today, we find one of the most famous dreams in history. Joseph remembered them. This was a significant thing. It's been recorded for us here in the book of Genesis. And so as we return to Genesis to finish up the book this book of foundations of our faith, we're brought back into the story of the people of God by learning more about the children of Jacob. And it's going to be their stories that will bring us to the end of the book of Genesis. Now we've read the first 11 chapters of Genesis 37 this morning, and we're going to break those down into my usual three points That way we can navigate the passage a little bit and see what is happening. So the first thing that we are going to see today is that the story we're tracking through Genesis is shifting to the children of Jacob. We're going to spend some time quickly reflecting this morning on where we've been in Genesis. We followed the line to the Messiah from all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis, and now now we're moving on to another generation once again. And we find that the primary focus is going to be on Joseph, which is interesting because we're going to eventually discover that Joseph is not the child of the promise. 
He's not the one through whom the Messiah will come. The head crusher is not going to come from Joseph. Now, we've been introduced to Joseph before, but we haven't had much detail on his life. But here we find that Joseph is the favorite of Jacob, and we'll see that this causes great discord with his brothers. Secondly, we're going to find that Joseph has a dream about he and his brothers that increases these feelings of distaste for him. They already didn't like him, and then he goes and starts opening his mouth about how he is going to be better than they are. As you can imagine, that does not go well. But we also find, thirdly, that Joseph has a dream about his brothers and his parents, and this causes even Joseph, or even Jacob, to question what Joseph has to say. And all these events, this, this short 11 verses that we've looked at today, or seven verses, this all sets up these final chapters of Genesis. We can get an idea of where this is going. And the point that is continuing to come through, what we're going to continue to see is that God is guiding his people. God is protecting his people. This is who God is. He brings his people to himself and he protects them, and he gives them salvation. And so we land this morning in Genesis 37, and we're brought back into the story of redemption that we have been tracking here in the book of Genesis. And we've sojourned with the people of God through the book of Genesis quite a bit so far. We're 36 chapters in, and we've seen the struggles that the people of God have encountered And over and over again, we see that it seems as though the promises of God are going to fail. But what happens every time? God does not fail. The people of God are shown that it is God alone who can rescue them. He takes them to the edge. He allows them to get to the point where the story seems like it's going to be over. But what happens? God saves his people. So we can sort of see the big stories that we know from Genesis and and see this point over and over. In the garden, Adam and Eve plunged humanity into sin. It's over. But God offered the promise of the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And then Cain kills the righteous Abel. And there's not a righteous one to pass on the promise. The story's over, right? No, God provides Seth. And so the promise of God continues. And then the world becomes unrighteous and violent. But God shows his favor to Noah. And the promise of God continues. And then Abraham, he is called out of idolatry. And he follows God. Yes, we have our champion. But there's a problem. Will the story continue? His wife is barren. And despite Abraham's attempts to solve the problem on his own, God is the one who provides the child of the promise. Despite the age and despite the dead womb of Sarah. And then Isaac and Rebekah also experience barrenness, but God answers their prayers. And then they conceive twins, but God reveals to Rebekah that the older will serve the younger, flipping the way in which the blessing is usually passed on. And so Isaac prefers the older Esau. And so Jacob and Rebekah deceive Isaac. And suddenly, once again, we have a threat. The story's going to be over. Esau is going to kill Jacob. 
Jacob will never be the one who brings the promise. But despite the unfaithfulness of Jacob, what did we find? We found that Jacob grew to trust in the faithfulness of God. And then the conflict between Jacob and Esau is resolved peacefully. It always feels as though the story's going to be over, but God is faithful to keep his promises. And so with all that tension that we saw in the first 36 chapters of Genesis, we probably shouldn't expect that chapters 37 through 50 are going to be filled with too much peace, should we? Things have been bad all through Genesis, this tension in the plot, and we should expect that going forward. So we see some tension right away in the first verse of 37. Remember, in addition to the promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent, we've also had the promise of the offspring of Abraham possessing the land. We focus mainly on the promise of the Messiah. That's most important to us. But there was also this promise of the land. And we have seen that Abraham and his offspring have been in the land, but what do we learn every time? They haven't possessed it. They're sojourners. They have not taken hold of the land. And as this chapter starts, we see this drawn out again. We're being reminded that Jacob lives in the lands, land of his father's sojourning. And so we're being reminded that Jacob has not taken hold of the land of Canaan, just like his fathers before him. And then right away in verse 2, we see that the story is being passed on. We've seen some transitional language in Genesis before exactly like, like this. It says these are the generations. This indicates that we're moving on to another part of the story. The story is changing. Now, even though Jacob is still alive, Jacob is there, we're not going to see much of Jacob anymore. The story is moving on. And we get an idea right away of who we're going to primarily dwell with as we finish up Genesis. Now, we don't know much about Joseph up to this point in Genesis, but, we do, but what we do know about him helps us to understand what's going on in the next few verses. Remember, Joseph was the long-desired child of the wife that he long-desired. He was the child of Rachel. Remember, Jacob worked 14 years for the hand of Rachel. And then what happened? She was barren. Once again, a theme that keeps coming up in Genesis. Well, finally, she gave birth to a child, and it was Joseph. And then, when, and then God providentially opened the womb of Rachel a second time. What happened? The beloved wife of Jacob dies, and Benjamin is born. Therefore, it should come as no surprise to us that Jacob favored Joseph. And we see here that this is true. He was the favorite child of his favorite wife that he labored for for so long, and the child he waited for for so long. But the first thing that we're presented with here is that Joseph is an informant for his father. Now, we don't know if his willingness to be a tattletale is connected to his favored status at all, but I'm pretty sure it didn't hurt the matter much with Jacob. My favorite child gives me the information I desire. This is fantastic, right? This type of informant is a valuable thing, but it's also a very interesting position to be in. 
It gets you in good with the person you're informing, but it makes you detested with the people you're ratting out, right? Many years back, uh, when I was doing youth ministry, we, we would go to a Christian music festival at a large campground near Canton, Ohio. And we had a rule back then that everyone needed to be with one other person in our group because there were like 20,000 people there. You had to be with somebody else. Well, one year we had an older girl latch on to one of the younger girls, and she was the person she took with her everywhere. She was trying to find a loophole. She figured she could boss this younger girl around, do whatever she wanted, and no one else would tell on her. So she was doing this. She was taking her all over the place, and this girl just happened to be like Joseph. She told me everything that was going on. It was good. Turns out that she had met some people online through a discussion board about this music festival. They weren't doing anything bad. Nothing bad was happening, but for some reason, this older girl didn't want me to know about this. Well, the plan backfired, not only because this one girl, Tara, was telling me everything, but one day there was a storm, and we all had to go to the changing house for the beach. There was like a concession stand there. It was a pretty big building, and we're all inside. And this older girl is sort of pacing around, and she says she's worried about this friend of hers, somebody I didn't know. Well, before I had gone up to talk to her, this younger girl had told me, that's the guy we're meeting up with. And he had left. So the older girl did not know that he was there, and she was pacing, wondering. And so I went up to her, and she said, well, I'm worried about my friend. I said, it's okay. I saw him. He's okay. The shock on her face was unbelievable. And she goes, how did you know who he is? I said, I know all and see all. And I went over to my wife and the other adult volunteers, and I relayed the story to them. And I said this when I ended the story. I said the same punchline. I know all and see all, but I do it so much better when Tara's around. And that's kind of the same thing with Joseph. He's sure he knew what was going on. But having Joseph around made it even better. And like I said, we don't know if Joseph's tattletale ways endeared him to his father even more, but we do know that this would have made him even more unpopular with his brothers. Nobody likes the rat. Nobody likes the tattletale, right? And the text here is very clear on Jacob having Joseph as the favorite. Not only are we told Joseph is the child of his old age, but we also see that he gives him a robe of many colors. Now, that seems like an odd gift to me, and I'm guessing it probably sounds that way to you. It's probably, gave him a robe of many colors. As a kid, when I would hear this story, I imagined it was like a bathrobe because I heard it was a robe of many colors. What other robes did I know? I imagined it like a bathrobe. What's he giving him a bathrobe for? I was really confused, but actually there is some real significance to this robe or this coat of many colors and it being given to Joseph. Now, obviously, if, Joseph, or if Jacob gives something like this to one child, it might seem like a gift. That's why we would, we would look at it and say, ah, he's giving him a gift. He doesn't give to the other brothers. He's the favorite. He's just showing favoritism. But, but that is something 
the brothers knew all along. That wasn't a surprise to them, right? You don't need a robe for them to know that Joseph is the favorite. Now, we don't know exactly what the coat looks like. The, the language is sort of hard to translate, and, and we do some different things with it to, to figure out what it means. But what we do know is that it's very likely that this type of a robe would have indicated that Joseph was considered to be some sort of prince. Now, he wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the natural heir. But this robe is telling the brothers that Joseph is the one who his father sees as ultimately taking over their clan. Again, that would normally go to the oldest. But I'm guessing not only the oldest child of Jacob is upset by this. Because to get down to Joseph, you have to pass by a bunch of other children who are older than him. Like I said, it's one thing to have a favorite that you give a gift to. It's an entirely different thing to take the rights and inheritances of one child and give it to another. You can understand why they detest him. And you see this in the last verse of this first section that we're looking at for our first point. When his brothers saw the love Jacob had for him, they hated him. It also tells us they could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even put on, put on for a second that they were okay with this. They couldn't even speak peacefully to him. In the book of Genesis, it wants us to know this is deep resentment. This isn't just an eye roll when he walks by, right? This isn't just talking about him when he's not around. There is deep, deep, deep resentment here. And we can understand it. When we see what's going on, this is understandable. Like I said, this is more than them being annoyed with the little tattletale favorite brother. They detest him to the point that they don't even speak to him peacefully at all. And so this leads us into our second point as we consider the first of the two dreams. And it's interesting that we're brought into the story of Joseph here with him having a dream. He probably had a lot of dreams, right? If I learned anything from that short little book I told you about, it was that we all dream all the time. But we're, to me- we're meant to understand here in Genesis that this dream is special. We're being informed that Joseph is receiving revelation from God. That's the idea here. And so Joseph is different. Joseph is special. He has a connection with the Almighty. So think back on the different stories about the heroes of the faith that we we have seen so far in Genesis, right? Noah had a revelation from God to build the ark. Abraham is told to leave his country and kin and follow God to a place that he will show him. Before Jacob was even born, Rebekah was informed that the younger shall be served by the older. And then we found Jacob, when we were looking at his life, he had dreams, right? One of the most famous dreams in history, the dreams of the staircase or the ladder coming down from heaven to earth. And now we're introduced to Joseph. And if we already couldn't feel that the story was going to be about him, that the storyline was going to follow him, this is cluing us in beyond a doubt. We understand now that God's hand is upon Joseph. Joseph. 
He is receiving revelation. He is the one that God is going to bless. And so the way this, smart, this, way this starts out here, it actually makes me smile a little. Because before we even hear what the dream is about, what do we read? We find out that it isn't going to be good. This isn't a good dream. Because his brothers hate this dream. Before we even know what the dream is, we know that they hate it. It's like when someone comes to you and tells you, you aren't going to like this, right? That may may very well be true, but with that lead-in, you know you're not going to like it. And the same thing happens with this dream here. And so we get some info on this dream, and if we didn't already know the story of Joseph a little, we would probably not be too fond of Joseph as we hear this. His sheaf of wheat stands up, and his brother's sheaves of wheat bow down to his. No wonder the brothers are not fond of his dream. They already know their father favors him. He has singled him out with this coat of many colors. And now the robe isn't just resting on his shoulders as he walks around like a big shot wearing it. It's clearly gone to his head. I didn't grow up with a sibling at home. But I had friends who had multiple brothers, and this seems like the kind of thing that would be um, legislated by brothers, if you know what I mean. Uh, This would not have gone over very well. Something like this happening in the home of my friends, it would have been taken care of. And we're going to get into how that's taken care of after Easter when we come back to Genesis. But we can see, because we know the story of Joseph, we know that he's sold into slavery in Egypt, you can see here how the resentment is building. They aren't like you, Joseph, or I'm not like you, Joseph says to them. And so he tells them this dream. They probably didn't say, man, that's a crazy dream. What did you eat last night? No, they are upset. This isn't an innocent, hey, fellas, you won't believe what I dreamt last night. It was weird. No, he is letting them know that he thinks that he's better than they are. This dream is easy to interpret. He knows what this means. The brothers know what it means. And with the favoritism of their father, and now the robe to prove it, they are going to hate Joseph even more. And we see this told to us plainly. And we can feel it in the text, but we don't have to even infer it. The text tells us straight away, as what we're looking at here tells us, that he is hated even more by his brothers after they share the dream. But as we go to the concluding part of the passage, we find that the dreams he is having are not just about his brothers, and that that it not only leads to hate, but it also leads to them having jealousy. So the second, second dream is very similar to the first, but this time it's about more than just he and his 11 brothers. Once again, we, we know this story, but if you were hearing the story for the first time, you'd probably be like, Joseph, man, what are you doing? You've got to learn to keep these things to yourselves, man. Because sharing this with his brothers 
who already despise him, it just isn't too smart, is it? Well, this time the brothers aren't gathering sheaves that bow down to him. They are stars. Now, that sounds a little bit better on the surface, right? Stars are pretty. They provide light. They twinkle. Maybe, maybe even you could connect it back to the promise to their great-grandfather. They would have known that promise to Abraham that his, their descendants would be as numerous as the stars. You could spin this one pretty well, couldn't you? But we don't start out too bad. But then the dream, the dream, yeah, he shares even more, and it isn't good for Joseph. Because we now have the sun and the moon, not just the stars, we have the sun and the moon, and they're bowing down to him as well. There's clearly the sun and the moon are the are his father and his mother. The stars are his brothers. Now I had always assumed when I had read this before, and I kid you not, I I had to read it three or four times to make sure I had read it wrong before. In other words, to undo my assumptions about the passage. I always thought that Joseph was a star too. And the other stars were bowing down to him and the sun and the moon were bowing down to him. No, it doesn't say that Joseph sees himself as a star here. He's him. And these heavenly bodies are bowing down to him. Imagine what the brothers are thinking about this one. It's one thing to be one of us, to be a sheave like us, and then we bow down to you. But now, who do you think you are, Joseph? You're different from us, and even our parents should bow down before you? I can imagine the resentment and the anger that they had towards Joseph, including thoughts of, well, dad, See what happens when your little favorite gets his princely robe? It goes to his head. What do you think of him now? And you have to wonder if those questions weren't going on in the head of Jacob as well. Because his answer here gives us the idea that he might be a little bit upset at Joseph too. Hey there, favorite son, I I gave you that robe and all, but Do you really think that your mother and your brothers and even I am going to bow down before you? Do you really think that we're going to get down in the dirt and be in subjection to you? And it's at this point where we read of the jealousy that's building up in his brothers. That is a strong emotion. And you couple that with the hatred that we have read about. And while we don't see it in what we read today, You can tell that something is brewing here, can't you? It isn't just that they think their brother is an arrogant little jerk. They're jealous. They want to be favored by their father. They want to be the one who is most loved. They want the robe. They desire to be the one who is bowed down to. They desire to be the one who takes over their clan. But notice here how the passage ends. It's on the thoughts of the brothers and then on the thoughts of Joseph. He wasn't wild about the suggestion that they would all bow down to to him, but he's been around the block with God. He's learned that God is doing something, and he also knows that God means business with dreams, doesn't he? He knows that there may be something more to this. Jacob has learned to look beyond the moment And think about the, what does this mean aspect of it? Perhaps 
Just perhaps this is more than the dreams of a self-absorbed, narcissistic young man. Maybe, just maybe, God is once again on the move. And he is going to miraculously save his people once again. And so we come to the end of this passage, and we once again ask ourselves what we can take away from it. Now, it would be really easy to moralize this passage, to treat it incorrectly and give some tips here. Uh, The moralization of this passage would be don't be a self-absorbed tattletale. That'd be really easy, but that's not the point of the passage. Genesis isn't telling us this story for the purpose of us deriving this moral principle from it. This isn't one of Aesop's fables. The purpose of this passage is to tell us the story of redemption and how God keeps his promises. And so that's where we want to dwell on this as we think about how we can take this passage with us into the world this week. As we land back here in Genesis, we are reminded of the promise of God, the promise to bring a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent and bring us into right relationship with a holy God. You and I have been reminded today that God uses His means to accomplish His purposes. And as we head into the story of Joseph, we will see that God is rescuing His chosen people from certain death once again. And he is using Joseph to do it. And he does it through a difficult and most unexpected way. So here we sit, just one week from Palm Sunday. So we are well positioned to consider the salvation that God brings to his people. The story of Joseph is going to take us on unexpected turns. But ultimately, it leads us to the people of God being rescued from death in a time of famine. And as we get closer to remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are going to see an unexpected story as well. Because who would expect God the Son to take on human flesh and suffer and die to save his people? And the most unexpected turn of the story is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on the third day. And so as we step into the world this week, may we contemplate the plan of God for the salvation of his people. May we look forward to our remembrance of the death and resurrection of Jesus and know that God works his salvation for us. May we trust in his good work for us day in and day out. And may it drive us to holiness as we remember that you and I, like Jacob and Joseph and the children of Israel, we are the people of God. And he brings his salvation to us by his means. And for us, that is the work of Jesus on our behalf. So may we be like Joseph, and may we be like Jacob, looking forward to the promises of God. And may we specifically be like Jacob, as we saw at the end of the passage, May we keep in mind what God has done and what he is doing for us. Because we see how God is the one who rescues his people. It is God and him alone who does the rescuing. And as we head towards Easter, may that thought be in the front of our minds. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.